Please be aware that this episode talks about child sexual abuse. Also, you'll get a better picture of this panic as a whole if you listen to part one first. And I'd also recommend listening to our first episode on Stranger Danger, too. On this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. The children were made to chew pieces of these children's hearts. We dig up the caskets from the graveyards, and the children were made to lay in the remains of whatever was in the casket. Everything is attempted to be destroyed and killed. In that child and in society, everything is goodness. Almighty Satan, destroy those who love God. If we could do a deep dive into the subconscious of America... If we could lie America down on an overpriced psychotherapist chase lounge, I'd really want to ask America about the 1980s, about what, exactly, America remembers. In a Satan-obsessed nation where, according to one poll, 68% of people said they believed in the devil and 60% believed that devil worship was a serious problem, Two new characters, Stranger Danger's murderous pedophile and the Satanist, started to blur into a force literally hell-bent on depravity that reached unimaginable levels, or more accurately, levels of depravity that could only come from the imagination. America created its own modern psychological archetype of evil, combining an ancient religious villain with a brand new social boogeyman and voila, the satanic pedophile not to mention his or her network of cults, materialized from the ether. In part one of Satanic Panic, we touched on the cultural anxieties that were growing through the 1970s as women began careers and left children for the first time in the hands of relative strangers. As the moral majority movement pushed fundamentalism into politics, we saw how the seeds of Satanic hysteria were sown through pop culture, sensational media, and religious hucksters, directing parents' attention to the possibility that the devil and his cults might be influencing their kids. For part two, I'll cover what's been known as satanic ritual abuse, the belief that this network of cults were also using daycare centers as fronts to physically, sexually, and emotionally abuse children in grotesque religious rituals. I'll attempt to understand how this could have happened, how, for a time, forces on the political left and right were united in what has been called, time and time again, the Salem witch hunt of our modern era, including the longest and most expensive trial in U.S. history. If you haven't heard of this bewildering and relatively recent time in our culture's history, you're not alone. It almost seems as if we've collectively repressed this terrible event— But now, as these stories start to return in new forms, it's time to lie America down on that couch. It's time to close our eyes and remember. Only about 90 years ago, as the Great Depression hit in America, did the world of children transform into anything resembling what it is today. Child labor laws passed nationwide as desperate adults became unwilling to give away scarce jobs to 10-year-olds. 
No longer contributing to the economy, children began to occupy a sentimental, symbolic place in society. And with the influence of Romantic-era ideas about the spiritual innocence of children, adults created a new, special, and separate world for them. A world without any trace of sin, taming the predators of the old one, the lions, the tigers, and bears, into stuffed animals with large, loving eyes, hearkening back to a time before death, before pain, back to Eden itself, before the fall of man, before the perfect world was ruined by the single sin of Eve, seduced by Satan in the form of a serpent to destroy the rule of God. But come the 1970s, many mothers for the first time were rejecting that biblical origin story for good, leaving their roles as homemakers to start careers, some by choice and some out of a new economic necessity, and the massive turning over of children to daycare centers, as well as the new, more powerful position of women in society, caused our culture to simmer with an underlying anxiety. As Nixon vetoed a federal daycare bill designed to aid working mothers and alleviate the strain on the welfare system, the need for childcare only continued to grow and private daycare centers opened all over the country. Bolstered by the stories of the milk carton kids who'd been kidnapped by murderous pedophiles, a new, even more terrifying supervillain started to form in the fires of pop fundamentalism, one who would desecrate children's Eden of Innocence profoundly and terrify them into silence by sacrificing those most beloved animals right in front of their eyes. Because just like adults once wrote children a paradise, in the 1980s, they would also write them a hell. The local fundamentalist church held an extraordinary service. There's been a lot of questions about, are there any witchcraft, occultism, Satan worshippers in the area? And the answer is obviously yes. The preacher asked his flock to protect themselves with their faith, but some chose a more down-to-earth method. Brother Blunt, I believe in the Lord, and I believe in you, but I'm still going to carry my gun because I'm scared. The work most often credited with sparking the satanic ritual abuse panic is another one of those evangelical hoax memoirs, much like Mike Warnke's The Satan Seller that we talked about in part one. This book was published in 1980 and was called Michelle Remembers, written by a woman named Michelle Smith and her psychiatrist, Dr. Lawrence Pazder. This book. How can I even describe this book? Michelle Remembers is like a Pentecostal fever dream made into an especially lurid Lifetime movie. Through 600 hours of hypnotherapy with Dr. Pazder, Michelle recovers an avalanche of repressed memories from her childhood of extreme ritual abuse by a satanic cult. The book alleges that her mother surrendered her to a satanic leader named Malachi, who, along with his cult, used six-year-old Michelle in an 81-day devil-summoning ritual called the Feast of the Beast. Michelle was covered in spiders, covered in the blood of dead fetuses that she'd watched being crucified, and in the blood of kittens she'd watched being slaughtered. She was physically, emotionally, sexually, and spiritually abused, made to have sex with snakes, and even had horns and a tail surgically fused to her body. But then... In a crescendo of glittering light, Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the Archangel Michael all show up and save Michelle from the chaotic grindhouse horror, erasing all the memories of those terrible events, tucking them away in a corner of her mind so that she could rediscover them only when the time is right. Conveniently, they also remove all the scars of the abuse from her body, the scars from the horns and the tail, all the physical evidence magically dissolved. 
It may be shocking to us now, but this book blew up, with Michelle and Dr. Pazder touring the U.S. and appearing on all the most popular talk shows, eventually leaving their own spouses to get married to each other. The book was, of course, debunked several times throughout the 1980s, with interviews from siblings that Michelle claimed never existed, her father and schoolmates that knew her as a quiet student during the times she claimed to be in the constant throes of a satanic cult. It was clear from the taped interviews that Dr. Pazder had fed, for the mentioned 600 hours, false information to a vulnerable patient under hypnosis. Those who've studied the tapes closer note the many similarities to the apparent West African cannibalistic religious rites that Pazder claimed to have witnessed while working abroad, and by all accounts, liked to bring up quite often. Recovered memory therapy has since been seriously questioned by scientists and psychologists alike, as it is extremely easy for therapists to help create false memories with suggestive techniques, even if they don't mean to. But the thorough debunking of Michelle Remembers and the techniques it involved hardly mattered to a freaked-out public. This book also had a very clear agenda. Written largely in the helpless voice of a child, Michelle is continuously abused by the female members of the cult, which she calls the Mommies. The conclusion of the book then alludes, very unsubtly, that the real villain of the story is Michelle's mother, because it was her that originally abandoned Michelle to the cult. By extension, all women who put their children in the hands of strangers are suspect. There is a pointed call for the return to the moral nuclear family system, the only hope against this kind of organized abuse. And, of course, a return to fundamentalism itself, as it was Mother Mary that appears magically to become the mommy that Michelle had been missing. The author of a popular book on Satanism, Dr. Lawrence Pazder. One of her primary aims is to, des to destroy the belief system within a child, to make the child turn against what they believe in in terms of who they are, of who God is, uh, and to desecrate all manner of flesh, all manner of church institution, all manner of sign and symbol that a child could in any way be attached to. All of a sudden, hypnotherapists all over were helping patients recover horrifying memories of satanic abuse. Michelle Remembers was used to train social workers in conferences on child abuse all over the country, never mind the magical claims of divine intervention. And as these social workers returned from these trainings, a shocking number of new allegations of child sexual abuse began to surface and over time became more and more bizarre, more and more impossible, more and more like the outrageous stories of Michelle Remembers. In August 1983, a woman living in an L.A. suburb named Judy Johnson told the local police that she believed her two-year-old son was being molested at his daycare center called the McMartin Preschool, specifically by a teacher named Ray Bucky, the grandson of Virginia McMartin, who owned the business. Judy was adamant, noted Matthew's red and irritated rectum. After interviewing Judy, the Manhattan Beach police sent letters to 200 current and former parents of McMartin saying they had reason to believe that children were being used for pornography, molestation, and oral sex based on the claims that Judy Johnson had made. And of course, the parents freaked out. Why wouldn't they? Very quickly, scores of parents got in touch with the police, saying their children had admitted to being touched inappropriately or photographed. The police began speaking with these children, but had no special training in the handling of such a delicate situation, 
So they referred families to a place called the Children's Institute, where licensed social worker and psychotherapist Key McFarlane began interviewing the children with her personal therapy invention, anatomically correct dolls, complete with sexual organs. You know the ones where someone says, show us on the doll where he touched you. Key McFarlane told investigators that the kids had accused not only Ray Bucky, but also his mother, 66-year-old Peggy Bucky, and his grandmother, Virginia, who was in her 80s at the time. They were all charged with sexual crimes against children based on these interviews, along with four other teachers from the daycare. Children's genitals were inspected by doctors who claimed to be able to spot tiny signs of molestation, and this was used as physical evidence during trial. But it wasn't just McMartin. Throughout the decade, ritual abuse cases were raging in Texas, New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Washington State, Florida, and North Carolina, among other places. And soon, the accusations took a turn into the extreme, into the bizarre, as Dr. Pazder and Michelle Smith were hired to spend time with the children and parents of McMartin, kids had started remembering rituals, black masses, dead animals, and baby blood, just like Michelle had once remembered. Here's a list of just a few of the allegations made from all over the country, often during official testimony at trial. Babies, dogs, and cats were drowned and dismembered and boiled and eaten. Children were forced to eat feces, drink urine, and defecate on the Bible, and then forced to lie naked in the shape of a pentagram. They were forced to sit in a kiddie pool full of baby-eating sharks. Tiger kittens were sacrificed in cemeteries. Giraffes and elephants were cut open. A horse was slaughtered in the middle of a playroom. A parrot was trained to peck at children's genitals. Someone cut the arm off a gorilla at a local zoo. Workers dressed as pumpkins shot children in the arms and legs with bullets. Kids were forced to carry around the bones of exhumed corpses, and passers-by were dismembered with a chainsaw. Teachers flew through the air in witch capes. Children were flushed down toilets into secret underground tunnels. They were flown around in hot air balloons to secret locations and sold to politicians, or flown in airplanes to Mexico and abused by Mexican soldiers. At one point during the McMartin trial, Chuck Norris was identified as one of the abusers, circled in red crayon by a little boy for the entire jury to see. Jimmy talks about having a gun held to his head, about being shown a skeleton, about having to touch the skeleton. He has drawn pictures of a child being sacrificed. Uh, he's talked about animal sacrifices. He's disclosed molestation. When the children started talking, they started talking about robes and candles. They described an Episcopal church. The truth about Satanism is they truly do use blood and they mix it with urine and then they also use the real meat, the real flesh. This is what makes Satanism true and this is what 1,200 molested kids in the city of Manhattan Beach have told the Sheriff's Department. And it the lines between entirely different professions, between religion and science, were all blurring together. Christian psychotherapy and exorcism were recommended by clinical therapists to their patients. Cops were playing the role of child psychologists. Social workers were becoming criminal investigators. A poll of California social workers found that 45% believed in a national conspiracy or network of multi-generational perpetrators where babies, children, and adults are sexually assaulted, physically mutilated, or killed. 
For activists in the rising victims' rights movement, the most important cultural shift that needed to happen was for victims of sexual assault to be believed and for justice to be brought against their abusers. But the dominant culture, and especially those in the moral majority, weren't interested in the more credible accusations of women. So when these fundamentalist groups started to believe children who had claimed sexual abuse, it felt like a victory. This is where we start to see a strange allegiance form, but there was a serious problem. Only those abuses that fit into a fundamentalist narrative, with the abusers being satanic cult members in daycare centers, and the victims, helpless children who'd been abandoned by their newly working mothers, were taken as real. Victims' rights advocates had long fought to expose the silent problems in the nuclear family dynamic to face the fact that the majority of sexual crimes against children are committed by male family members, often fathers. But trashing the reps of the dignified spiritual leaders of that nuclear household wouldn't have fit into their pro-family stance. Satanic child abusers, however, also called for an increase in the influence of fundamentalism in politics as the evil transcended what could be stopped with just an earthly criminal justice system. And so, in one of the most bizarre partnerships ever formed, feminists and fundamentalists cheered the maxim, we believe the children. And no matter what the children said, they were believed. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Regnetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. 
How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. As the media and tabloid talk shows latched onto the growing numbers of stories with iron jaws, with Oprah and Geraldo running specials on satanic ritual abuse with record numbers of viewers, with guests like Mike Warnke and Dr. Pazder and Michelle Smith as their alleged experts, as well as glassy-eyed guests who'd allegedly been raised in brutal satanic cults but had just remembered it. A legal task force was formed, and Dr. Pazder was spending, by his own account, a third of his time teaching law enforcement about satanic ritual abuse. Police in various small towns began digging up abandoned lots, looking for the supposed corpses of hundreds of infant sacrifices. Children had started telling stories of women impregnated in factory form just to give birth to infants that were immediately slaughtered as sacrifices and thrown into a mass grave. The Law Enforcement Task Force's Guide to Satanic Ritual Abuse reads as follows. It's gross, and I'm sorry I'm even reading it, but it feels important to know the official story that was being told and also being used to train police. Sexual orgies among cult members always involve the balance of pleasure with pain to serve Satan. Rituals involving the insertion of eyeballs into the vagina or rectum symbolize that demons are inside the child always watching. Male and female children and adults are married to Satan, who is considered bisexual at various ages. Staged birthing of bad babies, dead snakes, rats, and objects are seemingly pulled from between the legs of small girls who are told they are giving birth to bad rotten things. As the pre-trial began to grow more and more lurid, with kids making more and more sensational accusations of satanic rituals, the prosecution struggled to adjust to an extremely expensive and public trial that was spinning out of their control. And so, after three years, they decided to only try Ray and his mother Peggy. In order to deal with the wilder claims, the DA told the jury that Ray had staged the more bizarre situations for just this very reason, to undermine the future testimony of the children. The prosecution said, in an act of pretty incredible forethought, that Ray had beat a horse to death in the classroom and successfully hid all evidence of it just so that kids would later tell the story and be disbelieved. Toward the end of the trial, the jury finally got to see those tapes of Key McFarlane interviewing the children. A TV was rolled into the court, a VHS tape pushed into its VCR. In each video clip, Key McFarlane appeared with a different child, the array of anatomically correct dolls and toys in front of them. She begins by asking questions while pulling the clothes off the dolls, showing the kids their private parts. She's gentle at first, as all the children deny being touched or having their picture taken, as they distractedly play with the toys, barely paying attention to Key's questions. But she's working off the correct assumption that sometimes kids are threatened to keep abuse secret. She then invites children to talk with her in the voices of different dolls and toys, making it clear that this is a game of imagination. 
Then her questions become a little more leading as she starts to provide these lurid details herself, trying to get children to agree that these things happened. As they still deny it, she becomes well coercive. She tells them she already knows that these things happened, that all the other kids had said so, and that she knows that this kid is involved. She makes it clear the answers that she wants and the answers that she doesn't want. The disdain in her voice obvious as the children continue to say that nothing happened. Then she begins bordering on outright abusive. She tells kids to show their anger by slamming the doll's head on the counter, showing them how in a shocking display of force. The children that will not admit to the abuse are called stupid, dummies, said to have bad memories or be lying, all through the sweet put-on voices of various toys. Those that finally did agree to what Key was saying, agreed to being abused, were praised brightly and rewarded by Key and their parents alike, who showered them with attention, believing that the very worst had happened. And so, the kids did what the adults had made clear they wanted. They lied, and then they kept lying. It seemed that the wilder the story got, the more praise and attention they were given. Not only that, they got to go home. The facts of the case also began to tell a different story. In every single trial, not a shred of true physical evidence, not a drop of blood or bodily fluids, not a single pornographic photograph was ever found. Many of the children accusing Ray of abuse had not even attended the school at the same time that he worked there. Toward the end of the trial, Judy Johnson, the original accuser in the McMartin case, was found dead in her home from alcohol poisoning, and it was revealed that she, to the knowledge of the prosecution, was a diagnosed and unmedicated paranoid schizophrenic who had told law enforcement stranger and stranger stories of satanic abuse and pedophile networks all throughout the investigation, information that was withheld from the defense. The jury came back on January 18, 1990, and after a trial lasting six long years, after $15 million of taxpayer money, they found Ray and Peggy not guilty on 52 counts, and they were deadlocked on the other 13. They were free to go, bankrupt by legal fees, free to pass through the screaming parents, the children, some now grown into teenagers, and the sea of rabid reporters. Ray would be sent back to court for the remaining charges, but they would be dismissed after a three-month trial. Key McFarlane was exposed as a relative fraud, never holding the psychotherapy degrees that she had claimed. It was also revealed that she had began a romantic relationship early on with one of the biggest tabloid reporters who produced endless exclusives on the McMartin case over its six-year run. I never did anything. My son didn't do anything nor my mother, my daughter, or any of the teachers. I just can't imagine ever molesting a child. I'm not guilty, Your Honor. 190 people nationwide were charged with the ritual abuse of children, many of them women. But unlike the McMartins, 83 people were convicted in total. Several died in prison. After the McMartin trial, skeptics and believers battled it out, many claiming that the trial had been a miscarriage of justice for the child victims, or perhaps even a conspiracy of silence. But then, in 1992, FBI agent Kenneth Lanning shared his extensive work in a report on satanic ritual abuse, declaring that the threat just wasn't credible. 
And so, by the mid-90s, the debunking of satanic ritual abuse had become the hot new story, with Geraldo apologizing for his role in the hysteria, and those who still believed becoming the subjects of ridicule. And then, just as quickly as it came, the whole panic seemed to disappear from the consciousness of the public, but it didn't disappear for the scores of people directly affected. Years passed, appeals failed, and hope diminished as those in prison continued to deny their guilt. And then, 10 years later, 20 years later, the medical experts began to admit that their molestation detection methods had since been proven bogus, and many of the grown children began to recant their testimonies. They said they'd been coerced and bullied into the accusations right from the beginning by social workers and police and even by their own, mostly well-meaning, completely terrified parents. At these new trials, the prosecution that once believed everything these children had said on principle bashed them brutally and called them liars, but what they would gain from recanting never became clear. As the convictions were overturned, many of the grown children wept at the sight of those they had accused being released from prison all those years later. In 2005, one of the main accusers wrote an open letter to the McMartin family that was published in LA Weekly. He told of coercive techniques, of the confusion, of the guilt and the fear, and about how his own mother would never believe him as he sobbed and tried to tell her the real truth throughout the trial. He ended with a simple statement. I would love to look at the defendants from the McMartin preschool and tell them I'm sorry. After the letter was published, the McMartin family, however, refused to accept his apology. They refused to accept his apology, they said, because he did not owe them one. It was the adults, the prosecutors and cops and psychotherapists and social workers and so-called experts that they wanted an apology from. Dr. Pazder had died the year before of a heart attack after admitting that perhaps the horrific things detailed in his book, his book that trained psychotherapists and social workers and police, his book that sparked a nationwide moral panic with severe effects for all involved, had not happened to his patient-turned-wife. But whether it was true, he said, was far less important than the fact that Michelle believed it. To be clear, the maxim, we believe the children, is a good message because it's true that kids almost never come forward with false accusations of abuse, and false accusations of sexual assault are very rare in general. Methods of interviewing possible child victims have since been completely revised by child psychologists to avoid those types of leading questions. But in the 1980s, all the focus on the confused testimonies of these coerced little kids derailed a rising victims' rights movement that was full of survivors with less sensational accusations that did not include satanic sacrifices, but often did include male members of the sacred nuclear family that the moral majority was so obsessed with venerating. The problem was not that the children were being believed, but that, since the very beginning, they were not. The kids of the Satanic Panic trials were not corrupted by pedophile Satanists. They were corrupted by the symbolic fears of anxious adults in a chaotic culture war. And whether or not any actual sexual abuse occurred to any of these kids will likely never be known because of the way the panic unfolded, because of the way everyone was swept away in the story of it all and what it meant. 
a perfect terrifying metaphor for a rapidly changing country. And so, it starts to make sense why some of these satanic child sex ring themes are coming back now, as the number of women graduating from college is surpassing the number of men in a post-Me Too world where victims of sexual assault are encouraged to share their stories and seek accountability of their abusers. A North Carolina man was arrested Sunday in Washington, D.C. after a shooting that he says was motivated by an internet conspiracy theory. The Pizzagate rumor came from fringe elements of social media and was pushed during the campaign by right-wing websites like Breitbart, which is run by key Trump advisor Steve Bannon. It has also been pushed by the son of President-elect Donald Trump's new national security director, Mike Flynn. On Sunday after the incident, Michael Flynn Jr. tweeted, quote, until Pizzagate proven to be false, it will remain a story. In 2016, as the first woman made a viable run for president, reports burned across social media that Hillary Clinton and campaign chairman John Podesta, known online as hashtag John Molesta, were running a satanic child sex ring out of a D.C. pizza parlor named Comet Ping Pong. The alleged coded evidence was found, where else, but in Clinton's infamous leaked emails. One such email was sent to John Podesta about spirit cooking, a controversial performance art piece involving menstrual blood that was taken as a real satanic ritual participated in secretly by the powerful elite, a.k.a. the Illuminati. These conspiracy theories were shared 1.4 million times by more than a quarter of a million accounts in their first weeks of life. Russian trolls began creating fake Facebook news ads citing satanic ritual abuse of children by Clinton, and they spread all across the internet. Just a few days later, Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential election. A month later, a vigilante conspiracy theorist entered Comet Pizza searching for the child victims with an AR-15, opening fire into a restaurant full of patrons, including children. Miraculously, no one was injured. The newest rumor circulating is known as Frazzle Drip, which surprisingly is not a new drug on Riverdale. According to Believers, it refers to a snuff film produced for the dark web showing Hillary Clinton and longtime aide Huma Abedin sexually assaulting and murdering an underage girl, ritualistically filleting the girl's face and then wearing it like a mask. Just like those Depression-era adults once created the innocent Eden-like world of the modern child, with its lush green gardens and crayon blue skies, with its plush predators and its uncomplicated purity, adults in the 1980s created its perfect opposite, a brutal, godless hellscape of grinding torture, featuring the slaughters of those beloved animals, of kittens and puppies, snakes slithering into their helpless bodies. While children continue to occupy that cultural symbol of ultimate innocence, it seems that Hillary Clinton is now fulfilling the same role that the daycare workers once did, a psychological symbol of the fear of the increasing power of women. Satanic ritual abuse accusations call back to a common interpretation of our most influential cultural origin story, Eve's pact with the satanic snake of original sin and God's subsequent punishment of all women to exist only as wives and mothers and to be subservient to men. It's a convenient story, isn't it? So many of our stories are just that, convenient. 
convenient to reinforce the power structures that be, or to vent our anxieties symbolically. Michelle remembers, and the concept of satanic ritual abuse, are examples of these stories. It seems that every time women want for more, they become partnered with Satan, the challenger, the adversary to the social order, who's bound to slither up out of hell any time they step out of line. Next time on the show, 2016 saw a rash of phantom clown sightings rock the nation, with children and adults reporting clowns lurking, chasing, offering candy, and brandishing weapons. But it wasn't the first time. I'll take you into the uncanny valley and into the world of true crime to explore why the clown has become the monster that it is today. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, assistant produced by Derek Smith, and produced and edited by Clear Camo Studios. Please leave us a review and follow us on social media. You can find those links in the show notes. Have a great week. Have a great week.